welcome back to the Building Voices podcast, the CMS Infrastructure, Construction and Energy Disputes podcast, where people in the know discuss the topical issues that are impacting the construction and infrastructure sectors. I'm your host, CMS Associate Jack Cranwell, and today I'm being joined by CMS Senior Associate Jay Randawa. Welcome, Jay. Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me. Uh, so today our podcast is going to be looking at the international construction treaties issues um, and there's lots going on in that space at the moment. Jay, there's, there's been lots of discussion. What's going on at the moment? Yes, so the construction sector has always um, attracted treaty claims and they're only growing in popularity as international contractors and developers become more aware of their rights under investment treaties and see it as a potential alternative to bringing contractual claims where they have um, contracted with um, state-owned entities. So in particular, we're starting to see more claims relating to the suspension or cancellation of construction and infrastructure projects. And given the events of the past 18 to 24 months with COVID and various economic uncertainty, I think it's um, relatively likely that we see more types of those claims start to eventuate um, in the future. Okay, it's really interesting. And Jay, I understand you've been having a look at a particular case that's uh, come out quite recently. What can you tell us? Yeah, so there there are a number of um, interesting exit cases in the construction sector over the last couple of years, but um, one in particular in 2020 was the exit case of Stauer, Eindom and others against Latvia. Um, and listeners can see a full detailed review of this case in our construction annual review, but there were a few particular points of relevance that I wanted to pick up during our discussion today, as I think they're particularly relevant for contractors or developers looking to pursue claims for terminated or cancelled or suspended projects. So this case concerned a number of investors, uh, including Stauer Eindom, who set up an SPV um, known as Rixport for the purpose of um, bidding and tendering for a development project in Latvia. And the development project was for a parcel of land immediately adjacent to Riga International Airport. And the development was to be the construction of um, hotel and conference centre, business park and various recreational areas. Um, and it formed part of a wider expansion project for Riga International Airport, which was intending to increase its passenger ship from around two and a half million passengers a year to seven and a half million passengers a year. So quite a significant investment in developing that transport hub. So Rixport was successful in in being awarded that contract for the development and their contract was with a state-owned entity known as SJSC, who was the operator of um, the international airport. SJSC is um, its major shareholder is the Latvian Ministry of Transport. Um, so despite that contract being awarded in 2006, things moved relatively slowly. And in fact, Rixport was never able to begin construction of their development. And the main reason for that was that the development plan for the airport changed a number of times with passenger levels changing and the size and scale of the airport changing. And then ultimately in 2008, following the financial crisis, there was a very significant interruption to the progress of the development and SJSC ultimately had to admit that the project had no longer become economically feasible um, as there simply wasn't the demand that there was in 2006 um, for the airport or for Latvia to serve as a transport hub in Eastern Europe. So there were some negotiations between the parties, but uh, ultimately um, Rixport's land leases um, that they had been awarded for the development were, were terminated and they brought these exit proceedings 
against the Latvian government by asserting that SJSC were acting on behalf of the Latvian government in uh, breaching the investment treaty between Norway and Latvia and expropriating or otherwise um, treating their their investment as a breach in breach of the uh, fair and equitable treatment standard. And there are a couple of really interesting points for the tribunal's decision, which ultimately held that um, Stowers' claim could was would be unsuccessful. The first is in relation to the issue of of attribution and whether or not Stower could demonstrate that the actions of SJSC should be attributed to the Latvian government or whether they were operating independently. Now, despite the fact that there was a very strong relationship between SJSC and the Latvian Ministry of Transport, um, so for example, the MOT had a role in SJSC's decision making. There were political appointees to SJSC's board. Um, SJSC relied on public funds being released to them. Uh, SJSC had to submit development approvals to the Latvian Ministry um, Cabinet of Ministers. Um, despite all those things, the tribunal held that um, attribution could not be established and that the Ministry of Transport was simply a shareholder. And um, the actions of SJSC were, were independent. And despite the fact uh, that that it had such a strong relationship with the state, it, there was no evidence to demonstrate that its decisions were not independent commercial decisions and were instead driven by um, the intentions of, of the Latvian government. And there was no reason to suspect that SJSE was not operating as a separate legal personality. So that was quite a significant decision. The, the second um, decision of, of significance was with regards to the fair and equitable treatment standard. Um, so the tribunal held that, in fact, Stower was, did have a legitimate expectation that their investment would be subject to a consistent policy with regards to the development of the airport. But where that, that claim would fail is that Stower was not able to show any breach of what those expectations were. So because they had only been awarded land leases and the leases did not prescribe what underlying assumptions or what the, the policy was underlying that particular development. They weren't able to demonstrate that the underlying assumptions had changed through the, the contraction of the planned development for the airport. And as, as a result, that standard had not been breached. Two very interesting decisions um, and um, uh, decisions that I think will have wider implication um, on similar claims being brought in the next couple of years. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, so in this post-pandemic environment we find ourselves in where state-backed ventures are, are being reassessed. What kind of considerations do you think uh, our listeners should be looking out for? The last couple of years has seen quite significant change, obviously, in relation to the COVID pandemic, but also uh, more recently economic uncertainty. And that's only going to result in uncertainty for construction and infrastructure projects. Um, I think we're going to see more projects being cancelled or suspended or at least contracted in respect of their size and scale. Um, airport projects are a perfect example of that, given given the impact to the aviation industry over the last um, 12 to 18 months. And that's why I think the Stour decision is of particular relevance for investors in the airport sector. Um, what the decision really shows is that construction companies and developers can certainly bring claims where projects are cancelled or suspended, but there is various hurdles they will need to overcome to succeed on those claims. The first of which is proving attribution. It doesn't follow as a matter of course that simply because you have a contract with a state-owned entity that that state-owned entity is exercising the will of the state in making decisions. 
it, there is a, a further evidentiary threshold to be to be demonstrated in order to prove that decisions are politicized or driven by um, intentions of the government as opposed to independent commercial decision by the state-owned entity. So uh, that's an evidential issue that that parties need to consider when assessing the feasibility of these claims. The second is whether or not you can protect your right to claim when entering new markets and investments in regions that are volatile or perhaps um, um, more vulnerable to economic instability um, by ensuring that your understanding as to the size and scale or other parameters of a particular investment are set out in, 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 in the documents relating to your investment, whether that's a project development agreement or an EPC contract um, or a letter of intent. If those parameters are set clearly, then if those parameters change in the future, you're going to be better placed in order to argue um, that you have a right to, to receive compensation because what, what you are delivering is a, is a substantially different investment to what you had anticipated at the time. And that, that is the issue that um, Stow was unable to succeed on, again, from an evidentiary point of view. And it's a real lesson learned for investors in, in major projects. Um, to potentially try and protect their rights to preserve treaty claims. So plenty to think about, um, unique issues, but I think, again, issues that, that are going to have wider implication for, for major projects over the next couple of years and, and useful points for investors to keep in mind. Yeah, Jay, you've definitely given us plenty to think about there. For more information on this decision, it's available in the CMS Annual Review of Construction Law, uh, available on the CMS website. I've been your host, Jack Cranwell, joined to you today with our guest, Jay Randawa. Thank you for listening.